What's your name? My name is Patrick O'Neill. What do you do for a living and how long have you done it? I am a sports broadcaster and I have done it for 20 years. What athlete do you think you have interviewed the most in your career? Maybe Andre Kopitar or Dustin Brown, one of those long tenured LA Kings. How many times do you think that you have had champagne poured on you while doing a live television interview? <laughs> it was only maybe once or twice. I, I, I ducked pretty good, but it might have been uh, one of those Dodgers um, series wins in the, in the locker room, but they didn't get me too much. It was more beer, if anything. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is Patrick O'Neill. He comes from an extremely famous family of actors, but he chose a different path as a sportscaster. And over the last two decades, Patrick has interviewed just about every significant sports figure in Southern California, usually right after games and some of the biggest games. Looking forward to this one. Good dude, genuine dude with a unique, fun story. Patrick O'Neill is up next. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, Patrick, thanks for joining me. It's, uh, it's been way too long since I've seen you, but uh, this is great. It is awesome. I'm talking with the, with the legendary Josh Sushan, the, the author of Miracle Men, which I have on my bookshelf right back there. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. All right. Well, I was already going to say lots of nice things about you that were all true, and now I'm going to say even more nice things about you <laughs> because you have my book on your, on your shelf. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. That must have been awesome for you to, to, to write that book, to, pu- to get it published. And um, it's just a great story. And of course, since we're all on lockdown, there's a lot of classic games that I get sucked into. Um, I, I, gosh, I miss, I miss sports so much, watching sports. But they had the, you know, game one of the 1988 World Series. And I'm listening to, uh, to Vin, and I think he's with, uh, he's with Joe Garagiola, right? Calling yep. that game. And uh, gosh, then Bob Costas did the the interview with with Kirk on the field. But um, you know, like that sixth inning, you know, when they they got a couple of runs across, um, and then Hamilton hit into that double play, and and then just so just I hadn't seen it since then those innings. So I was I was awesome, man. What an what an just what an incredible game it was, truly. Do you remember exactly where you watched that game the first time? Yeah, I was just watching it with my dad. Uh, we we watched so much sports together, so it was just uh, probably up at his, his house uh, that he he shared with Farah on just some uh, some television. Um, but I don't have a I don't have a tremendous memory of watching it live at the time. So I have I have more of a memory watching like Jack Clark in '85. You know, yeah, the need the need and fewer one like that one. I have a real specific memory of where I was, and I have a lot of like. Lakers memories, but I don't know what was going on in my life in 88 that I, I may have, I may have freaking missed it. And then just heard about it like some other people. So you did not leave early. You were not at the ballpark. Who left? I early. wasn't at the game. No, I, I, if I was at the game, I would definitely have not have left early. No way. All right. Well, that's a good transition. You mentioned watching sports with your dad and you know, your, your mom, your dad, siblings, you know, your whole family's been in acting. Give us, give us why. And you were initially doing some acting as well. Give us the why and the how you transitioned into sports casting. Uh, just sheer necessity, and had had a first daughter, Sophia, and a second one on the way, and just not able to pay the bills. And so I, I was just going to try to, after like twelve years of of 
you know, trying to be an actor and, and just taking any other jobs that I could get production assistant work, bartending work, anything to kind of just to work. Um, and I, I just, I also didn't feel that confident as an actor and I love sports so much. And so I was fortunate enough to, my uncle in law knew, um, Terry Jastro well, who is a golf producer, produced a lot of those Jack Nicholas events. And he was knew Bill Brown very well, who was a um, executive with Fox Sports and set up a meeting for me as a favor to try to get into production, you know, because I, I did like production a lot. I did a lot of work on, you know, movies and television uh, commercials as a, as a production assistant. But Bill Brown, I was like 31, maybe. So I was still relatively young, gave me an opportunity. He said, what about, you know, sports casting? And I, I have to be honest, I had a dream that, I mean, that was, what I wanted to be was a sportscaster because watching SportsCenter and ESPN way back in the day, I would rush home from an acting class just to try to catch the 11 o'clock SportsCenter. You know, I just was obsessed with it. And I thought, well, maybe if I make it as an actor, I can just then be a sportscaster. I swear to God. I tried to go to ESPN uh, when I lived back east, you know, with no plan just to try to go in and like fill out an application. And I did that back here with um, Prime Ticket when I moved back to LA and like, 97 they're like sir you don't have an appointment you know so I just got really lucky timing is everything and also um, them doing a favor I got a couple auditions that Bill set up for me that this guy named George Greenberg saw my first audition and said you know yeah you're green but man you brought more energy than uh, than anybody that I've seen want to give you another chance um but then they just they just couldn't pull the trigger I had no experience you know on tv uh, back when they had um but I, I couldn't believe it was all happening so fast you know but I eventually got an audition. I kept bugging this guy, George Greenberg, who locked, liked my tape. And he said, um, how about, you know, radio? I, I kept, he said, because Fox Sports Radio was just starting. So I got an audition um, on radio. And I, I, re I remember exactly where I was when I found out that I was going to get an um, update anchor job. The overnight, you know, update was on a payphone. He's uh -huh. like, I only got the 12 to 5 a.m. slot Monday to Friday for 30 bucks an hour. Do you want it? I was like, I want it. And that's how it started. That was in 2000. I remember that you told me some story once about John McEnroe and a bat from Barry yeah. Bonds after a home run. Wasn't that right when you were getting started? That was the day I found out I got, I got the job, Josh. Great memory. I found out I was up, um, you know, John McEnroe, my ex brother-in-law, right. Married to my sister. Um, I just loved the guy to death, you know? So I drove up to Palo Alto cause he was playing uh, one of those senior events, like against Connors or something. And then he knew the owner of, um, of the Giants. And we had to uh, be in a Dodger fan, though. That was interesting. But, uh, but Bonds is in the on-deck circle saying, like, talking to McEnroe, right? He hits this home run into the McCovey Cove. And we're just like, I'm just blown away because they were just talking, you know, because Bonds is this huge tennis fan and McEnroe fan. And then he comes around the bases and he walks over to our box right there on the field and he hands – John the bat. And I am just like beside myself. I just I could not believe it. It's like, this is the greatest day ever. Right. <laughs> right. My first sports casting job, Barry Bonds is like talking to us and, and, and then, uh, then we go in the locker room and I had like a, I could not believe it. Like Bonds has this whole side of the, the locker room to himself. We come yep. in and everybody else has these stalls, just, you know, like Jeff Kent's like, who was like an MVP, you know, Next to everybody, and Bonds has a, uh, a lazy boy, leather, black cherry sitting in. There's a whole row of lockers himself and a, and a giant TV in front of it. And I'm like, what? what? You remember that? Yeah, yeah, no, I was covering the Giants that year. Yeah. I mean, I was probably sitting right next to you in the clubhouse at some point. Yeah. Because I'm yeah. sure I was trying to get quotes from Barry after the game and get it in the next day's Oakland Tribune or whatever. And you didn't even say hi that day. <laughs> oh, that's all right. I'll forgive you. <laughs> I remember I had this handshake with Barry, though. Like, you know, it was like it, it was uh, not a handshake, but it was like the, the you know, it, was just, it made this perfect sound. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Pop. I was like, wow, man, that was so awesome. And I was like, John, get Barry to sign the bat. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm like, what? I mean, we didn't take pictures. We didn't do anything. So that would have been, man. What is that 2000? So 2000. Like, obviously, I could find the date, right, whenever he, he hit that home run. But the interesting thing was is that when they asked – so the next day, Chronicle, I saw. I bought five copies. There's a picture of John and me in, the, like, the front page of the sports section. So I got so many of those. I loved it. 
my mouth is wide open. But when Bonds did an interview, I told you this, I'm sure, um, on like ET, they're like, uh, you know, Barry, why did you give John McEnroe the bat? He's like, oh, well, you know, I didn't really want to. But, you know, he said, hey, you know, he yelled at me. If you hit a home run, I want the bat. I'm like, well, I hit it. I guess I got to give it to him. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's not the story at all. You did it out of the goodness of your heart. And, like, I just found it interesting that, and Barry, if you're listening, you know this is true, that it's a good enough story to just be a good dude and want to give the bat. But he had to spin it, like, in another way. I found, like, I, I, was, I was blown away. I'm like, man, that, he's just – He's changing the story for no other reason than he, he wants to appear more like a badass or something. I couldn't understand it. Yeah, that is extremely odd. Because, yeah, I mean, that, that's a, it's just a, it's a good story. It's a good connection, man. Yeah. I remember, like, McEnroe held the bat up, and he was like, like this conquering hero holding up the bat. Exactly. Because I was like, he gave it to him, and John's just looking at the bat. And I'm like, dude, you know, hold it up. And he was like, boom. When's the last time you talked to John McEnroe? Do you think he still has the bat? Yeah, I think he ended up getting it signed, actually. Like, l- later, he ended up sending it to, I don't know, Larry. Was it Larry Bear, right? Yeah, that name, Larry right? Bear. Um, and, they, you know, Barry signed it and then sent it, sent it back to him. Like, man, it would just be so much easier just, like, have him sign it at the time, you know. But, you know, John, for some reason, went on the Andy Cohen uh, TV show. You know that guy? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, it just Only personally, personally, but. Right. No, anyway. And he kind of like, he badmouthed my dad, like on, like, I think Andy was like, Oh, we have an, uh, we have a question from the audience and um, you know, uh, they want to know about your relationship with Ryan O'Neill and what do you think of him? And he's like, he's a despicable human being. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe he just said that. You know, and of course that makes news. And I thought, you know what? It's like, I love John to death, but you know, you just can't just crush my dad like that. So haven't talked to him since. Oh, okay. <laughs> but we have some good memories, though. Yeah. Nonetheless, he's a, he was such a rock star, man, McEnroe. Like, so when he, he was number one in the world. is 84. I'm 17. I'm in boarding school. My sister was like, I'm hanging out with John McEnroe. I'm like, what? You know, like, I just won the Open. USO won Wimbledon, lost in the French, in that heartbreaker to Lendl, up two sets to one or something, and, and a break in the fifth and lost. And but then he just crushed Connors at the U.S. Open. He's number one in the world, and you're going out with John McEnroe. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And then I met him over the Christmas break, and, like, I spent New Year's with him, 84 to 85, and I'm like, this guy's number one in the world, and we're, like, partying. I was like, this is insane. And he was so famous. I mean, I mean, just, yeah, you're right. I was just, like, surrounded by too many famous people. It took me a while to kind of try to find my own way, not to be famous, but to just, you know, like, look, i got to get my, my stuff together here because um, – there's a reason why they made it, right? They probably a lot of hard work and I'm just like riding on their coattails, you know, hanging out, thinking it's cool to hang out with these celebrities. But after a time, I'm like, I got to, you know, pull it together and just grind it out a job. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I've, I've done podcasts with Tony Gwynn Jr. And with Reed Ryan, who's the son of Nolan Ryan. And obviously we talked about their dads and, and about what it was for them kind of finding their own path and forging their own identity. And for them, it was in the same sport and as you mentioned, you love your dad, you respect your dad, but you don't want to just be Ryan's kid. You, you want to be your own man. And yep. how, how did sports enable you to do that? Well, we had a, you know, without my dad and our, our love of sports, there's no way I'd be, I'd be doing this because, you know, that really, <clears throat> you know, solidified um, passion. You know, he was a boxing manager. He had, his, he had a fighter in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, Hedgeman Lewis, who just passed away. Um, but he fought for the, the welterweight, you know, title like a few times. And so it was, sports was like so much a part of our life. But, you know, I also was handicapped growing up. You know, they were, my parents were divorced and I love my dad. He's absolutely my hero. But I just thought, you know, I, I guess I got to follow in the footsteps. You know, my, my dad, my mom, my sister, my brother, my mom's sister's acting um, and so I, I thought I would, I would have to do it, but I lacked tremendous confidence. Um, and I think it had to be because, you know, they're just, you know, he's a very good actor, you know, he was so good. And my sister was, was so famous. And I just, I, I, I got really self-conscious and you can't, it just doesn't work when you go into these auditions, you know, you have to be 
um, so utterly confident and have no nerves at all. Or if you have nerves, you just can't show them, right? Because the people in the auditions, you know, they know they smell it like so fast. And I had a lot of opportunities. Like I was up against, I was up for some like cool parts and I would, I would pretty much choke under pressure. So, so fortunate that, well, also I, I did a lot of, you know, acting classes and always rehearsing. And I, you know, I did get some parts. Um, but when ultimately when I was able to, you know, after 12 years in my early thirties, get that opportunity as a sportscaster, I knew, I said, I mean, I cannot F this up. Right. So I had the ability as an, you know, having trained as an actor to project. Right. So I had, I felt I had a good voice and I had a real strong knowledge of sports and was just incredibly passionate about sports that I felt I can use, you know, my ability that, that as an actor to like, I can maybe, you know, at least in the beginning act my way <laughs> to this career, you know, and, and eventually I got better at it, you know? Um, but the first couple of weeks on the radio, I almost washed out, right. Because I was, you know, they didn't really want to help me that much. So the board op is like, dude, you got to figure this out on your own. You know what I mean? Um, I'm not here to train you. So I did, I had to figure it out on my own and it was a t tough in the beginning. Um, the overnight shift and the young, the, the young child at home and now sleeping in a different room and that relationship with the kid's mother, wasn't working out. And now the new career was starting, but I just had to forge on. And eventually I got back on the TV in, in 2002, but I had this radio, you know, um, not career, but I was working six days a week now, you know, 12 to five. And I, now I'm co-hosting the show on the weekend and a sidekick for a guy for a year. And that was 11 to two. And so I started to get more and more confident. And then I was ready in 2002 to then begin just the, the, my career in television. I felt much more confident in my ability. When you think about acting and if you mess it up, then okay, you know, you redo it. But on radio, on TV, you only get one take. And so how did you how did the acting help you for that? And how did you navigate that transition to just understand it's not always going to be perfect, but it's about continuing and, and trying to nail it as best you can in that one take. Yeah. I think that the mistakes that I made and, and I did make a bunch is that I was able to use, I always felt confident in my, uh, my ability to kind of like make light of the moment. I tried to use my sense of humor or to um, be a little self-deprecating or, you know, that was kind of the, the route I was taking. So if I messed up, I just was like, you know, move right on or kind of try to make fun of myself a little bit, you know what I mean? And not trying to be too perfect. And I think, I don't think I am your, um, like your typical sportscaster. Like if they were going to be casting a part for a sportscaster in the movie, I'm not the guy that they're going to be going after, you know, it's like they have the wrong hair, the wrong look, all of it. But I think I bring, uh, you know, my passion for sports and my personality. Um, I bring a lot of energy. Um, I connect well with, with people or an analyst that I'm working with. You know, I think all the timing that I learned as an actor, right, you know, all those rehearsals with other people really allowed me to work well with other people. And as a, as a host, um, which I do a lot of now is just hosting pregame and postgame intermissions at halftime. You know, it's, it's my ability um, to, to work well with others and not be overwhelmed by celebrities either. Right. Stars like, you know, when I, all those years hanging out with John McEnroe or Farrah Fawcett, you know, these are some big time stars. So like, all right, Kobe Bryant, you're a pretty big star, but you know, so was Farrah. So was John. I think I can, I can handle the conversation, you know? So I didn't let the nerves get the best of me. One of my favorite things that I did when I was uh, doing Dodgers radio, I want to tell the audience and, and kind of remind you of this, is, you know, it's before the game and we're in the dugout or in batting practice is taking place or on the field and you and Jim Watson or Steve Lyons would be hanging around and then the producer would come down and you'd kinda, you guys would kind of have like your production meeting like in the dugout or over here. And then I would just barge in on your guys meeting all the time because I, I just wanted to learn. I just thought it was fun. I was probably hanging out talking to you guys anyways. And I just remember just – how much fun it was, but also as I started to see like, okay, this is how the pregame show comes together. This, these are the things that they talk about and that the kind of the interaction with you and Lions and Wadi, and I think that translated on the air because yeah, you guys would constantly give each other grief, but it was, but it was good natured. And I thought that that led to chemistry. And I think that points to, you know, just the ability to connect with people and, and, and how that translates on the air. There were some moments. Uh, thanks. It was great. 
when you were when we were hanging out and when you were do those uh then you would have that job of having to go down on the field and interview fans during the game i'm like oh my god that's so hard um you did a great job uh but i, I had so much fun working with psycho steve lyons you know like that guy helped me um by when i first did that tv audition remember i told you that that guy george greenberg saw my tape and thought i had great energy well i was doing my first ever audition i have three days to prepare i knew what the you know, the highlights I was doing, I knew my leads. I mean, that's why I was so ready. I mean, I prepared my ass off for that audition. And I got to do the first audition with Chris Myers. Great broadcaster, right? Tremendous pro. And we did the whole like segment and then he's like, all right, um, we're going to do it one more time. And Chris is like, look, I got to go right for the show tonight. I don't have time to do it again. And he, you know, I'm not trying to throw Chris under the bus here, but he basically just said, I, I got to go. I can't do it again. And, and I'm sitting there um, it's a big, you know, Fox sports net had that, um, you know, they, they had the, those sports center type shows, right. And blanking right. on what they called it back then. Steve hosted it with Kevin Frazier and uh, Chris Myers and Keith Olbermann was there. And so I'm sitting there alone. I'm like, Oh man, bummer. I'm not going to get to try it again. Lions was there watching runs over, jumps over the desk, slides across and is like, I'll do it with you. <laughs> And I was like, awesome. And so we did a whole segment together and I had just met him that week, you know, and I was shadowing. I'm like, man. And then I ended up getting to work with him for years, you know, and I'll, I'll never forget that. That was so clutch. And that, that really started my career. Just that one tape for sure. Okay. So, so I always think that there's certain times when you think that this is what you want to do. And then there's certain times when you know that you want to do, when did you feel like I know this is for me and this is what I'm going to be doing for the next 20 years of my life. Well, I, I never really knew how, how long it was uh, going to last, but the minute I got the job, I knew that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Absolutely. As soon as I started getting the hang of the radio um, broadcasting and I was starting to have a lot of fun with it, I'm like, this is my career. I have got to do this and I cannot under any circumstance you know, let this slip through my fingers. So that's why I was working, you know, I mean, anybody else that wanted it would do it too, you know, but you know, I would start preparing for those overnight shifts at 9 PM, you know, games aren't even over yet. I'm already writing my, you know, scripts. Um, and I, I just was so into it. And, but I don't know what the moment when it finally clicked because there was so, so much uncertainty with Fox sports. Cause I started on, I went right to national TV so the best damn sports show period, they, when, their, when their actual like, highlight shows went away, they just started with the best damn sports show, and they would have these sports update breaks like three times an hour. And that's all they had going for live, you know, just highlight-type shows. So that was my first TV job was, was doing that. Like, um, and then when Van Earl Wright left Fox Sports West to start – a radio show in LA that opened up a position at local. And I love local. I love the Lakers and the Dodgers and the Kings. And, you know, I'm like, I, and I saw Steve Simpson at the lot um, at the Fox sports uh, main building. And I was talking to him. I'd met him like once or twice before. And I said, I don't know how it happened, but I asked for that job. And so they set up a, um, an audition and, um, you know, Max Bratos is a freaking awesome, awesome broadcaster. And, and he proved it because he was at ESPN for years hosting SportsCenter, which was always a dream. And, uh, but him and I were up for it and somehow I got it. But uh, it wasn't because I was better than Max. I just, I was just determined. I begged. <laughs> and so when I got that at the end of 04, 05, I'm like, okay, now I need to really grind in this job and make this one happen. And then I won an Emmy in 2006 um, for the year, I think for the 2005, my first year at West, they, you know, it's a local Emmy for, for sports casting. I was like, huh, like, all right, now I got, maybe this is a little, um, little job security. And then I got the Kings job. There was an NHL lockout and Van Earl had been doing it. There was the lockout. And I, I said, uh, I want the, the Kings job because everybody else like Eves had the Michael Eves had the Clippers and Billy Mack had the Lakers. And I'm not sure who was like, I think um, Carolyn Hughes was on the Dodgers. So the Kings job opened up. And so then that, that's when I first became like the Kings host for that start of that 2005 season. And then everybody else just drifted away. And <laughs> I'm the last guy standing basically. 
Yeah, and and here it is, twenty years. So let me uh, let me let me just transition. I'm just going to give you like various different names of of players over the last twenty years. And Sorry, I talked too much. Sorry, Josh. No, you it's what I, no, it's fantastic. It's a podcast. We got plenty of time, and if we run out of our forty minutes here on Zoom, we'll start a new one, right? Um, okay. Wow. So I'm going to start with um, since the time that we overlapped, Manny Ramirez. Your most memorable interactions or interviews with Manny Ramirez. I had a fun interview with him uh, on the field with, uh, was it, oh God, was it Barroa? Was uh, it Angel Barroa? Yeah, Angel Barroa, the shortstop. Yeah, Angel Barroa had this amazing game, but his English was, um, wasn't great. Um, so, but I was going to do the walk-off interview with uh, Angel Barroa, and I said, um, Manny, you know, and I stopped, man, because they didn't run, they did not run PR on the field. I had to grab these guys myself. It was crazy. I don't know why they wouldn't help me. And so I asked Manny to translate for Baroa. And like Manny Ramirez, you know, as a translator, he loved it. And so that interview was really funny. And at the end, Angel like spoke English, you know. And I was like, <laughs> So that was probably my, and, you know, that whole, that year when Manny showed up, my God, remember the buzz? It was incredible. Yeah. Incredible. I, re- I remember the, the Dodgers that year, after they got Manny, there was like an eight-game losing streak. And they were basically done. And then they ended up winning like eight in a row. And they came back out of it because the National League West was so terrible. But I remember when they ended the, the winning streak, it was, uh, it was at Phoenix. And, um, and I, you, I guess there was no TV then. Maybe it was a Saturday game or a Sunday game. There's no TV. So I got first pick instead of second pick, which I would normally get. Mm-hmm. And I remember like going over to like Matt Kemp. I'm like, Matt, you know, um, let me grab you. And Matt's like, no, you got to get Manny. And I'm like, I don't know if Manny's going to do it. He's like, oh, no, he'll do it. And so I remember I like asked, asked some question to Manny. And the first thing he does, he looks at me and he goes, I don't know, man. I'm just on vacation. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, how do I follow up on this? And so I think I said, how's your vacation going? Yeah, <laughs> right. He was, he was bizarre, right? He had like, so just, bizarre. So just different. But I'm right. I mean, they didn't come out and help us get in guys, right? Right, yeah. We were just on our own. It was weird. You'd get first pick, I'd get second pick, and... <laughs> or like you know, the other TV would get second pick, and I'd get third pick. Or, or something. Manny Manny Moda was do would come down there, and he would poach. You know, that's like, right. Manny man, would like you'd be talking to guys ahead of time. Like you can't do that, man. Oh, yeah, I remember when Manny came back from the steroid suspension, and, and me and Steve Lyons are on the bus, and uh, we're leaving whatever city we were. I think we were leaving New York, getting ready to go to Milwaukee. And Manny just has this grin on his face. He looks back and he goes, "Hey, psycho." I still can go oppo because he hit a home run that game. Yeah. <laughs> and then he went back to eating his meal. And it was just so funny the way he said it. Yeah, Manny was that, – that guy was like a legitimate superstar in Los Angeles for that time. That was an incredible moment. Amazing. What a hitter. Do you have any uh, – you got to have a Vince Scully story that most people don't know. You have so many of them. I, I, I have a lot. Um, I just remember being on the road and being on the, the bus to go to the stadium with Vin and never out of respect, you know, I never wanted to be that guy like asking him questions, but he, he was just one time telling a story about covering the masters in the seventies or something. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm just, the thing about Vin was he just treated you like a complete equal. And he made you feel like we're just work colleagues, you know, and he would just say hello and he just knew everybody's name. And I just thought, man, I just want to be like, and just be as respectful as possible, like, like Vin. It, it really was um, remarkable to, to be with him. Just incredible. I mean, that man was, is uh, something special. Yeah, I have a very similar story, too, where we're in San Francisco and like you on the bus. And, I, again, I don't want to be that guy bugging him. And Vin just wanted to talk. And for whatever reason, he was feeling nostalgic because we were in San Francisco. And he started to tell me the story about how, as a kid, he'd go around and grab um, Coke bottles, and it was five cents that you could redeem the Coke bottle, and it was 55 cents to go to a game at the Polo Grounds, and how his favorite player was Mel Ott, because Mel Ott was a lefty, and Vin was a lefty, and so if he could get 11 bottles, he would have 55 cents, and he could sit in the outfield of, of the Polo Grounds, and, and he could watch the Giants, and, and of course, the way that Vin tells the story is just mesmerizing, but yeah. it just occurred to me. 
his favorite player was Mel Ott, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and just that he's collecting Coke bottles on the streets that he can get 55 cents to go buy a ticket on the bleachers. It's, oh, it's just so cool. He's, a, he's a, quite a gentleman, and I hope he's okay. I know he just had a fall, but he uh, made a joke like that's it, no more sliding head first or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's the best. You must have been doing Dodgers when Eric Gagne was at his peak of closing out games, right? Say that one more time, Josh. Eric, Sorry. Eric Gagne, when he was closing out games, were you yeah, the Dodgers then? No. My first year covering the Dodgers was 2005. So I, don't, I, not, I can't remember. I don't think Eric was – he was still there, but I think he wasn't at the peak that year when he was dominant. Okay. What about Clayton Kershaw? Oh, man. Yeah, I was there when his rookie year. I guess a memory I have is – so what would – Clayton's first year have been like 08 or something like that yeah 08 and so that his rookie year the was that Joe Torrey's first year yep or is it Grady Little no that was Torrey's first year because that was my first year too yeah okay so then the the Dodgers won the division I think right they won the division or they were yeah yeah. so there was the um I was in that locker room celebration and that was like I think maybe one of the only times or that I got and I've been in I've been in two of the Lakers uh, championships, um, but not in the in the Kings. I didn't go in the room. I would have been drenched for sure. But I was hosting the show. But a couple of those Dodger ones, I got drenched pretty good. My shoes were ruined and that sort of thing. But uh, Sweeney had Kershaw dress up, you know, like as a rookie Hayes in that locker room as like a ballerina. And, and there's a there's a picture online of me interviewing Clayton Kershaw. I don't think I have the interview, but in his bout pink tutu. <laughs> and another story I have is I was with, eight, there was a bar, there was a bar in Camelback, that hotel, I always stay in fancy hotels with the teams, like the Ritz. And then there was this bar and I, you know, I was in there having a beer after the game and Clayton and AJ were so cool to me. So I was, I went over to, I was talking to them. Obviously I was, I felt uncomfortable because this is like Clayton Kershaw. And he said something, and I, I sort of got like, news. I spit the beer out of my mouth. Like one of those, like, you know, and they go, and AJ Ellis looked at me. He's like, oh, my God, you just spit beer all over it. Clayton Kershaw. I was like, oh, my God, I did. I did, and I feel so bad. Oh. Uh, but, yeah, those, uh, Clayton was, is, uh, is really, really cool, man. He's, he's a nice guy. You know, he always he, – he gets – I feel bad that he gets – um, you know, the, he's, he's saddled with the moniker of, of not being clutch in the playoffs. And, you know, I guess there's, there's, there's moments where he did not come through, but it just sucks. Cause he's, he's so good. You know, he's such a good person that you want, you want him to be, I cover the angels now, so I don't want it too bad, you know? Right. Um, but, but he's T- tell guy. us some behind the scenes about Mike Trout that we should know about him. There's, there's no ego with, with Mike Trout. Um, he is, he just wants to be one of the guys and he just wants to play baseball. And I feel that, you know, it's not that he's sheepish with being the, the superstar that he is, but he's humble. There's an incredible humility around Mike Trout. And he's just a, he's just like a normal guy. Like you could kick it with Mike Trout in his living room and just watch a game and just, he'd make anybody feel comfortable in that moment. Like if you were to be sitting in Barry Bonds' living room, you probably, you know, or it doesn't have to be Barry, but somebody that's so big, you know, Jeter, right? You, you might feel, oh my God, I'm in the presence of Derek Jeter right now. But Mike wouldn't make you feel that way. So it's just a, like I came back to the hotel once and he's like, hey, can you take a picture of me and my family? I'm like, oh yeah, sure. You know, I was like, you know, I'm like, man, that's my trout, you know. But, um, and he has some fun with us on the broadcast. He'll run through our shot and, I just look at his cleat marks in the dirt, you know, and how far they are apart in his jog. And he just, I'm like, the guy's such a machine, you know. He's such a machine. Incredible player. What about Shohei Otani? And especially with all the Japanese media that follows every move that, that he makes. It, it has been, it's bizarre, you know what I mean? But, I mean, we're living in a bizarre time right now in the world. But as far as sports is concerned, they, it's, incredible i mean there's 20 to 30 japanese media that have that their only job is to chronicle what shohei otani is doing and it's 
So the Angels have to really be protective of him. He's got his, um, you know, Ipe is his translator for English. But there's also, you know, um, you know Grace McNamara is um, Japanese. So she also is almost like a specific – she's doing a lot now with PR. But, like, her first year is like I'm, she's just a specific PR for Shohei. And he's, he's like, in a bubble. He's, like, tunnel vision for Shohei Otani. You know, there's no real, like, he jokes around with his teammates, but I don't get an opportunity to, like, he doesn't really give you the, uh, you know, the pat on the back or the head nod too much, you know. <laughs> he, he's, it must just, he's just too famous, I guess. I don't know. Who are some other interesting personalities with the Angels in the time that you've covered them that stand out, whether it's just for their, their goofiness or their intelligence or um, just their playfulness that, that, that kind of stand out that, that makes it fun when you're at the ballpark and you're around them? Yeah, well, I'll go back to my, my first year um, in, in 05 when I went to interview Garrett Anderson and my, uh, the guy, the ENG camera operator, uh, Jeff Sheeran's like, uh, hey, the Angels had lost and I'm looking for someone to interview. He's like, hey, go try to, you know, you should go t- talk to Garrett. And like, I had no idea that Garrett Anderson could be prickly with the media, <laughs> you know, and he just like, he, he did it, but he was staring at me like Joe Frazier, you know, like looking down at me. I'm like, oh my God, I was terrified. Um, I'm like, man, but what a, what a baseball player, um, trying to think, uh, you know, playful players there, you know, I like, I like David Fletcher, uh, with the angels right now. He is, he's a guy that's so competitive in that, in that locker room. He's, he's, if it's some sort of Nerf basketball game or he's betting guys, he's, he's he claims he can beat somebody 68 to nothing in, in Madden football, you know, he actually, I mentioned Jeff Sheeran. He will play Jeff Sheeran in Madden football in spring training. They played like a thousand games together. Really? Like, what? Yeah. So normally a baseball player wouldn't be like, you know, doing that with somebody that just works in the media, but he's just a real cool dude. Real. And he's an excellent baseball player. Yeah. David Fletcher is a uh, isotopes tormentor when he played for the Salt Lake Bees. Jeez. It mm-hmm. seems like that dude was on base like four times every game and just making plays defensively all over, no matter whether they were shifting, no matter what position he was on. I felt, well, I remember when he got called up, I was like, thank goodness. So he can stop tormenting the topes. That's awesome. He's so good. He's a great dude. And he's like one of those guys that like, I like the, I like the, the sometimes the players don't want to associate with someone like me, like the media, right? They'll do the interviews and they'll be kind, but they definitely keep up a, a wall and a distance Someone like David Fletcher, who might be an all-star sometime. I mean, he's, he's that good. Um, he just wants to – he'll just talk to you, you know. Like, you know, like, man, that guy's he's really cool. And there's some, that's why I always go to, like, the guys in the bullpen, you know, like uh, in spring training. I'll make, you know, make friends with the bullpen guys. Or if, you, if I throw – if I'm doing a walk-off interview, I'll want to get the guy to, you know, have the hold, you know, and, and because then that makes – some of the other players think, hey, that's pretty cool. He gave that guy some love. I'll be more, you know, open to doing an interview uh, with him later. But, um, yeah, some big-time stars, man. Albert Pujols, you go on the road with Trout, Pujols, Otani. It's, it's pretty incredible. It really is. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean because I remember thinking the same thing. Like, first of all, I don't want to have to interview Andre Ether and Matt Kemp 40 times a year, right, because you right. don't like burn those guys out where I ask them every game. And yeah, and if someone would, would get a big out in the eighth inning, a George Sherrill or um, what was his name, Wade, I'm blanking on Wade's first name, who had that great setup man uh, in 08 or 09. Um, you know, like those guys, and I'm sure maybe some fans at home are like, oh, you know, whatever, just a middle reliever. I want to hear from the star. And I'm like, well, you know, talked to Matt Kemp four times last week. You know? I'll <laughs> yeah. give the dude a day off from me. He's- no doubt. Man, Andre Ether could be uh... – a challenging interview if he didn't want to do it. Right. Yeah. And, but then when you got him going, he, he couldn't, he didn't have an end to his sentence. He just kept talking. He's, he's a cool dude too. Andre was, uh, uh Ether's another one of those guys that'd be friendly with you and you could talk about food or restaurants. Uh, that dude was pretty cool. How many times did you get the, uh, Gatorade or, uh, shaving cream or whatever they throw on guys these days? How many, uh, dry cleaning bills have you had to to, to, to wear as a result of walk-off interviews? Honestly, I honestly cannot remember a time that I got, you know, I got some, uh, you know, some shrapnel a little bit, but um, for the most part, I see it coming. I get the heck out of the way. And uh, lately, I, I'm not doing those interviews, so I'm like hosting the show outside. 
So I don't, you know, but I know like I've seen Alex Curry. She's, you know, she's, they're, you know, they're almost going after her more than they are the player. Uh, but really only those couple of times in the locker rooms where my, I think I just threw the shoes out and even try. All right, let's talk a little hockey. And before we get into hockey, um, I want you to kind of set the tone for when Wayne Gretzky got traded to the Kings. It was August of 1988. Describe what that meant for you and what Wayne Gretzky's arrival meant for hockey in Los Angeles. Well, for me personally, you know, going back to, you know, my relationship with, with John McEnroe, John was like best friends with Vetus Gerolitis. And um, Vetus was dating Janet Jones in like 86 or something, right? And I met Janet. And so then when Gretzky started going out with Janet Jones and then married Janet, like I'm going to the Kings games because McEnroe and my sister lived in Malibu. So I'm sitting on the ice and I'm talking to Wayne like after the game and Janet. And uh, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is, I'm like hanging with McEnroe and Gretzky. I'm 20, 20 years old, 20, uh, probably 21 and 88. You know, I'm like, what a life. I'm just, for me personally, it was incredible. That hockey, that guy, you know, and then he'd like make eye contact with you when he skate by. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I was just like a little kid. And those are some really good Kings teams, like 89, 90, 91, you know, leading up to them, you know, getting to the final in, in 93. But my prized sports memorabilia possession is um, a hockey stick that Wayne signed for me. I think it's, it's 1990, it says he wrote it, 90 or 91. But he's like, you know, to Patrick, you know, nice to meet you. Good luck in your career, Wayne Gretzky. I'm like, oh, my God. I've, I, I've moved like 20 times in my life that has been in, in my wall in every apartment I've been in. Oh my goodness. That's awesome. How, how did that come about? Did it was just after the game and like, he just gave me a stick, you know, and Janet's like, do you want a stick? I was like, yeah, I'd love a stick. And then he just signed it for me. Also, I, I, the only time I've ever gotten a hockey puck in my life, I was sitting behind Janet in the stands at the forum and the, the puck flew up into the stands. like basically like, and like hit the seat right next to me and fell at my feet. I picked it up. And I remember looking down on the ice, I'm holding the, the puck up in the air like, yes, you know, and then I'm looking down on the ice and Wayne is looking up to make sure Janet is okay. And then after the game, I'm down in the locker room, uh, outside the locker room, and Janet says to, uh, to Wayne, like, you know, um, like, oh, Wayne, you should sign the puck for Patrick. And he's like, oh, he doesn't, he doesn't want, you know, he doesn't want that. Right? And I'm like, no, that's okay. I'll take it. I'll sign it. Yeah. <laughs> So I got, I got the, the, the puck signed by Gretz, you know, and I went to his 30th birthday party. Michael Barnett was his manager and he called me and they threw a 30th surprise birthday party for Wayne at this restaurant in Beverly Hills. And I just like, I dropped everything and I was there for that. And uh, again, no cameras, you know, nobody yeah. taking pictures back in the day, but I have the memory. What is the guest list for Wayne Gretzky's it, surprise 30th birthday? I just remember everybody on the team being there. So, like, you know, Tom Webster was the coach of the Kings at the time. He just passed away. And I was talking to him for, like, a half an hour. He was so nice. And uh, John Tonelli was another player at the time that I was talking to. And I'm like, this guy is so incredibly nice. And Kelly Rudy. I'm like, oh, my God, Kelly Rudy is so nice. You know, and Marty McSorley. I'm like, oh, wow, Marty is so nice. And I'm like, these guys are the best, you know. But I don't remember. I, I think Mac was there. But I don't remember. Um, I can't remember the celebrities. I only have the memories of talking to those players. So I've never covered hockey, but for the people I know who have, you just use the word nice and it comes to my mind about just the overall niceness of, of hockey players. And I'm wondering if that's changed or if you have any theories on maybe it's because it's the fourth most popular or, or just what it is about the hockey players where it's just a different relationship than it is with other sports. I think they're just so willing to um, have fun and you know poke fun at themselves uh, poke fun at each other it's kind of like the sport where everybody's chirping at each other all the time right um those guys in the locker room they'll chirp us they you know you chirp them back they're just um it's just kind of how they were brought up and i think when i first joined the the king's broadcast that's how it was and and that's how it used to be um you know with the kings back in the day like they would do intermission interviews like gretzky would do like an eight minute interview an intermission Eight? Now, they would do almost the whole, I swear to God, long interviews at intermission. But now it became, you know, maybe there's, there's no time. They, they got to get back in the room. It got, became much more strict. You have two questions. You got to get out. More, much more serious. 
you know, I, I got the sense as the Kings started getting really good and Dean Lombardi was the GM and then Daryl Sutter became the coach that everything became really, really serious. And I could see why they end up winning, you know, two Stanley cups and could have won three in a row. I mean, that team was incredible, but it, you know, less, less fun, more serious, but still really, really good guys. I asked you earlier about Vince Scully, which means that I have to ask you about Bob Miller, who I think is, um, if he's not Vince Scully, he's darn close in the world of hockey. Give us some of your, your most memorable interactions with the gentleman, Bob Miller. Uh, he loves telling jokes. He'll show you his baby picture. Uh, just be prepared. <laughs> um, he's a, and he'll show it to anybody, by the way, man or woman. Uh, uh, and you're like, oh, my God, how is she going to react to that? Um, and they love him. He can carry uh, a room. He's the life of the party. He, he goes up to, you know, I'm, I'm a little, personally, I'm a little more social anxiety sometimes and like a a big, big group, you know, I I don't know, but Bob, man, he just carries the room. And I would always want to talk to these great guys. I never had a chance to ask Vin, Hey Vin, how'd you feel after the broadcast? (laughs) Uh, But I would talk to Bob about it. And, you know, he would always have that one call that he wants back, you know. I don't know how you feel when you're doing it, but. There's about 13 calls that I want back every night. (laughs) (laughs) He probably had that many, but he just remembers "Ah, that one time I missed that number. And, man, I I look at how these guys call the games. Like, I can recognize our own players, um, but then every night it's a new team, new set of numbers, so many line changes. It's a tough, tough game to call. And uh, he, he was just flawless. But it was, it was a lot of fun hanging out with Bob. And, and you know, that's something I'll, I'll cherish in my career is that I got to work with Vince Scully. One time Vince Scully said, um, let's go to Patrick O'Neill. Because <laughs> most of the time we do a walk-off interview, he'd just say, good night, everybody. And then I'd have to take it. I'm like, uh, thanks, Vin. <laughs> One time they, they had – it was like a seventh-inning hit. And it was a direct toss. He had no choice but to say my name. Wish I have that on tape somewhere. Yeah, yeah, there was there was a pre-recorded thing that Vin would say that was like, "All right, it's now time for Dodger talk with Ken Levine and Josh Sushan." And oh my goodness, I wish that I would have a copy of that so that yes. I could have Vin's voice introducing me, even if it was recorded. I know, I know, man. But you know, we just don't think about that type of stuff. But you know what? It happened. That's at least it happened. Uh, I, I just thought of something else here. I, I realized that like half the questions I'm asking, I hadn't even prepared, which is the best way to do these, anyways. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember one time Ned Coletti, when he was the GM of the Dodgers, he's a huge hockey fan, and he'd want to talk hockey. And I'm wondering how, as you, as you bounce from one sport to another, you find that athletes will look at you as a sportscaster and say, hey, I want to know about this hockey team, or I want to know about Manny Ramirez, or I want to know about Clayton Kershaw, or I want to know about Kobe Bryant, and sort of like how you're able to bridge different sports because guys want to talk about other sports. Yeah, you know, I don't, it doesn't happen that much. Um, I think a lot of times uh, it doesn't happen that much anymore because my main gig is like the Angels and the Kings. And it's rare that like the Angels player is going to be watching the Kings hockey, you know? So it's like they, they, don't, they don't really overlap. But back when I did the Dodgers and the Lakers as my two main gigs and the Kings, I, that, that certainly would happen more often. Some of the Kings players might want to know like what's Kobe like, you know? I definitely would get those questions a lot. And, but Ned Coletti, another great guy. We would talk hockey a lot. He knew Dean Lombardi, the GM of, of the Kings, uh, the then GM. And so those guys would be talking hockey. Now, now Ned's a scout for the Sharks. Do you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. I, seen, I saw Ned this year a couple of times coming in. He would scout the Pacific Division for the Sharks. I'm like, this guy is amazing. Is he still doing the Dodger TV and living in yeah. Manhattan Beach and then also scouting hockey? Yep. Yeah, I know. Very cool. Uh, so, yeah, it happened from time to time. Not as much as you would think, but because, um, you know, personally in my role, I tried not to, you know, I, I wanted my job to last as long as possible. So I didn't want any of these players to say, man, Patrick is that guy. Maybe he wouldn't even know my name. That guy is driving me crazy. He won't <laughs> stop talking to me. So I just, I've always tried to balance how much I bother them. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I can definitely relate 100%. You mentioned Kobe. How many of the, uh, the walk-off interviews did you do with Kobe over the years, you think? Walk-off on the court, playing to the crowd, and on, on television, 25 probably. Yeah. What, what, um, what, are the, uh, what are the challenges? What are the easy parts? What are the hard parts 
uh, the challenge is, uh, sorry to interrupt, it was just coming up with a good question because the guy does so many interviews and he's so intelligent that if you don't give him a question that he can answer, then I think he's just going to give me a short, short answer. And, and if he's not in a great mood, then I'm the one that's going to look stupid, you know? So I got to think, you know, all right, like who, what, why, you know, can you explain like why that happened, you know? But then you got to deal with, all right, the nerves, uh, the crowd, you know, them counting and talking in my ear and the fact that it's Kobe Bryant. Like it, it was an overwhelming visceral experience. Um, you know, I do have like a, a regret because I interviewed Kobe. It was the first person to interview him after he scored the 81 points in 2006. And I have a picture on my wall. He, I got him to sign that also. That's another cool thing that I have. But I didn't ask him, did you ever think about scoring 100? You know, I mean, 81 is still, you're still pretty far away from 100. So that's why I didn't at the time, you know. Um, but, yeah, it would have been impossible. So, but I still think, like, maybe I should have thrown that out there, you know. Did you ever think that you might get to 100? I don't know. I don't know if I would have asked that either. Because, yeah, yeah I mean, I don't know how you get to 100. 81's a long way from 100. I know, it is. And he's running out of time, and he had to put up, like, 40-something points. Uh, I wonder how many he scored in the, in, the, in the second half. can't remember. It had to be more than 40. Anyway, yeah. What? But I interviewed – oh, the other thing I wrote, I, because I, I interviewed him – um, he had 63 after three versus Dallas. It was either 63 or 61. And the score was 63 to 62 or 62 to 61. So he was actually outscoring Dallas by himself. And I didn't ask him. And then they didn't, Phil didn't play him in the fourth quarter. And I didn't ask him, did you know that you actually had outscored the Dallas Mavericks <laughs> on your own? You know what I mean? Right. So, but you know how it is. Everything happens so fast and you kind of kick yourself like, damn it. Why didn't I ask that? I'm sure Kobe knew. <laughs> yeah. Kobe knew. Yeah. One time yeah. I one time I was just about to interview him and before we went on, he's like, Hey, who was that uh who was that you were interviewing during the game? Because I do I would do these little sideline interviews. And I was like, um, Michelle Wee. It's like, oh hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. Everybody had their eye on Michelle Wee and they yeah. wanted to know exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of like the different interviews that you would do with celebrities and things like that, who are the biggest legitimate celebrity fans of the Lakers and Dodgers and who are the kind of wannabe, you don't, if you don't want to answer the wannabes, you can't, but who are the legitimate SoCal celebrity sports fans? Well, I know Jason Bateman is a friend of mine, loves the Dodgers, right? So, you know, he's, by the way, Ozark is freaking great. Love it. So Binge watch season three just like that. I know. I'm so pissed it's over. Um, I know that's not like, a, like the, the big name, but it's, it's hard for me to like really, really think about it now. I mean, Jack, obviously, with the Lakers, but everybody knows that. Um, Andy Garcia was always at those Laker games. I think Denzel. Denzel's a, probably a huge Lakers fan, but I think sometimes those guys don't want to go out in public that much, but um, definitely Denzel was there quite a bit. Alyssa Milano was legit Dodger yeah, fan. Yeah, and she'd be there at the Kings too, Alyssa, for sure. Yeah, she was. Alyssa Milano definitely was, wasn't she? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, she'd always be right behind the dugout is, is we, where we would stand and wait to go on the field. You'd see yeah. her right there. Uh, you had a tweet recently where Shaq is flying into the first row, and you're like right there. Yeah. Um, yeah, tell us the story about uh, where you're sitting and what game that was and how Shaq nearly ended your life flying into the first row. <laughs> Well, that's another one of these games that we're just, we're just stuck at home watching throwback games. And I was trying to, cause I went to a bunch of those games, like Jeannie Buss, um, because of my relationship with John McEnroe, Jeannie used to produce all those tennis events at the forum, like Jeannie and Linda Rambis. And so I got to be friendly with Kurt and, and, and Jeannie and Linda quite a bit back then. So Jeannie, I would call her and she got, um, got us these great seats you know, second row. And that was game seven Western conference finals versus Portland, right. In 2007, when they were down 16 points and then Brian Shaw hit that three at the end of the third to, to cut it to 13. That was incredible. But I was also there versus uh, I think game, a couple of games versus Indiana uh, that year. I got to sit next to Steve Kerr one time and Steve's like, I think Shaq's shot 40 free throws. And I said, no way. And it turned out Shaq shot exactly 40 free throws. Or no, he shot 39 because we bet a dollar. 
we bet a dollar and Shaq was 20 for 39 from the line. But I just remember thinking, and Steve was still playing at the time. And I saw him like the next year and I said, you owe me a dollar. He's like, what are you talking about? No idea who I was. And then, but it, it just goes to show you what a, like a savant he is. And like in his head, he was able to count the free throws, 39. I remember yelling at Jalen Rose, you stink, Rose. You're not a Rose, you stink. And he like looks over at me. I'm like, this is, I'm so close. Oh my God. But yeah, Shaq dove for a ball and, and he actually crushed my leg against the seat. And I had a huge bruise like on my calf, like for a week. But he, if, if the pressure had just been a little bit different, he would have snapped my leg, no doubt. Really? Yeah. Oh, it had to have been. He's so much force, so yeah. much weight. And then I remember looking like my ex, like, you know, my ex was with me at the game. <laughs> but I remember looking at that and she's like reaching across me, touching his bicep, you know, like stroking. So I texted her. I'm like, what are you, what are you, what is this? What are you doing? He's fine. You know, and then you could see Shaq looking over at her and I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. But that was fun, man. I had just started my, my radio. I just started my career, I think, right? That was that 99, 2000 or 2000, 2001? That I was, um, well, I'm almost positive that was 2000 because I remember watching yeah. that game at Gladstones in Malibu. I got in, that's when I was covering the Giants and they were about to play either the Dodgers or the Angels. I remember meeting my friend Eric Winter uh, a day early and we watched the game from Gladstones and the epic comeback. It. Yeah, epic comeback. Yeah, I, did, I guess it was the 99, 2000 season, right? So it yeah. was, it was too, so then that would have been, that would have been like April of 2000. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So then I hadn't actually started my, my broadcasting career. That was when I was just about to take off. Unbelievable. Oh, man. Um, Ron Artest, Meta World Peace. What do, what wow. do you got on him? What, what a shot he hit. Because I, I was re-watching that uh, game against the Celtics. Like Kobe had an awful first half, and then they, they came back and, and beat it. Was that 09? Um, but just pretty damn bizarre, I think. Pretty weird, but a nice person, like friendly and, and talkative um, and would always do these interviews, but he would say some crazy things. <laughs> but but um, I always found Ron to be uh, so cool. And I interviewed him in, a, in the scrum after that, that uh, game seven victory the year before they got spanked. Right. But then they came back and beat him uh, the next year. And he was or no, they beat Orlando. Then they beat the Celtics. So it had been like, I guess, two years later. But he was so cool. He was just a good dude. He was so happy. He hit that. He's like, Kobe passed me the ball. You know, it was just, <laughs> it, he was a funny dude. That whole Meta World Peace, Peace thing was kind of weird, but he was super cool. Really cool dude. So as we tell these stories and, and different things come up to your mind, and I'm wondering if you can kind of reflect on just this, this journey that you've had and how, you, and how this started in 2000. And, you know, we, we mentioned at the start about, you know, trying to find your own path and, and all these different things you've been able to experience. Yeah, I just think that I'm, I'm so blessed and I'm so thankful and it's just, and so relieved to have found a career, you know, to, um, I feel like a sense of pride that, um, that I was able to, to accomplish this because, you know, 20 years in this business, in this town, I feel like, man, I've had a good run. That's like, I'm not, I'm going to outlast some of these, these sports, uh, these players, their careers, you know, 20 years is a good run. I'd love to get, you know, I'd love to keep this going as long as possible because I absolutely like every day I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it, um, you know, that it could end, you know, like, like I can see that, that man, what a great job that I have and, and so many cool people that I get to work with. And I just, I'm really, really, really happy. I'm proud of myself that I was able to do it because there was a run there in my twenties, you know, where, I just wasn't, wasn't sure what I was going to do or how am I going to make a living as I knew in the back of my mind, I wasn't going to make it as an actor, but I didn't know what else I could do. So I was able to find something where I can use my creativity and uh, my personality and still kind of be a performer in a way. And, and I'm just, I'm so happy that it worked out. There's this cliche, but I think it's true that for all of us, no matter who your mom or dad is, you want your mom to love you and you want your dad to respect you. And I'm wondering with your relationship with your dad, like, and he sees you on TV doing these interviews and, and how you've been able to connect and bond with him over this. Yeah, he's, he actually, um, it, it means a lot. It really does because you do, you want your dad to be proud of you, right? It's like a Greek, uh, you know, mythology, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I'd never really, I, I don't get the, Oh, I'm so proud of you, you know, 
but I do get the every once in a while that he was watching and I get the sense <laughs> that, that he, he saw something, but I don't, I don't, he's not incredibly effusive, but I do feel that he is proud of me. He just doesn't say it all that much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't want to end on a bummer, but uh, I'm sorry about the closing of your gym, uh, Pro Gym, as a result of this global pandemic. Um, what can you tell us about the gym and, um, and how it became into your family and, and what happened because of this, uh, this disease, this virus? No. Oh, thanks for asking. No, it was my dad was an original owner. Uh, my dad's real name is Patrick Ryan O'Neill. So his initials on his license plate, it's like Pro 3. It was like Pro and then three kids, even though he has four now. But Back then, it was just three. Um, so it became Pro Gym uh, based on his initials, essentially. And so he was an initial – he basically helped out a trainer to own a gym, but he, he was like a silent partner. And then he took his name off of it, but he always felt like it was his gym. And it was closing a couple of years ago, and he found out. And, um, again, probably wanting my dad to be proud of me. I, I jumped in. I said, you want me to try to save it? So it was his money and my time. And for two years, I was essentially running the gym by myself. You know, my dad had some, you know, some, uh, he, he was not healthy, a lot of illness. Um, he's 79 now and he's doing well, which is great. But, you know, he, he just wants to know, he just wants to hear the good news. He doesn't want to know how, it's lo- how much money it's losing, <laughs> how the toilets are flooding, the, 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 the fountain, the, the drinking fountain doesn't work. Um, there's something every single day, Josh, something was going wrong. It was you know, a, a treadmill was br- broken. The bike is broken. I, but so I, I'm trying to do my real job, but yet I'm spending, you know, 30, 40 hours a week trying to run that gym and not even going there to work out, just going there to oversee everything. And, and employees are really hard. They just, uh, a lot of, they would just come and go, you know, it's not, you know, not a lot of people in Brentwood, California want to work for $17 an hour. You know, it's like they'd have to, so it was, a real challenge. Um, and then when the pandemic hit and the coronavirus, right there, everything's flying off the shelves. I couldn't buy the hand sanitizer. Um, I couldn't find the toilet paper. Um, I wasn't using a cleaning supply company, you know, but you know, people were starting to worry. Um, you know, I have a janitor come once a week, but suddenly all the paper towels that are people are using to wipe down the, the equipment, instead of taking one towel, they're taking 10, you know? And so it just financially, it was just becoming impossible. I felt to run it. And I I felt that this thing was going to be a big problem for a small business such as ours. And I was having stress related uh, anxiety over running this gym. And I was just telling my dad, I said, dad, I can't, first of all, we can be liable. If somebody gets sick in there, it's too hard to run. And I just, I I just made the executive decision to, to, to close it down because we're losing a lot of money mainly is definitely the reason, right? I mean, you can't lose that much money, you know, every single month and the rent so high. So people were very disappointed in me. My dad was very disappointed in me. And um, I think now, because I, I shut it down, the, the mayor said on May 11th, but on May 9th is when I sent out my email saying I'm closing this gym permanently. And people thought I was crazy. But then two days later, the mayor closed everything essentially. And you, mean, you mean March, right? I'm sorry to interrupt, March. Oh, yeah, yeah, March, March 11th. Thank yeah. you. March 11th. Yeah. So on March 9th is when I, I closed it down and people were mad. And then, then I think maybe now they understand, but yeah, it was a bummer, but I feel my stress. My stress is a lot better. It's a lot better. The gym's still there. So if anybody wants to buy it <laughs> after me telling him how much money you're going to lose. All right. Let me end with, uh, with the best topic and that's Farrah Fawcett. Uh, yeah. What type of cook was Farrah Fawcett? She's great cook. Um, she's from Texas. So it was, I think it was just a lot, a lot of meat and potatoes. Um, but she was, you know, the cool thing was, is that she just wanted to have dinner at home. And, uh, I mean, they would go out from time to time for the most part, it's like a home cooked meal and we would just sit at the table and break bread. And she was real down to earth and a lot of laughing. Uh, you know, she was a wonderful person. She's so nice. So kind to me. And a uh, real, real shame that she had to pass so, so early, but wonderful person. Yeah. yeah good cook, chili steaks, you know, <laughs> a lot of bread. How often would you have friends that were like, Hey, can I come over and hang out? <laughs> yeah. Now that I think about it all the time, <laughs> I, I told you how I snuck in the sauna, right? With Please tell again. <laughs> well, I, my dad has a sauna. I'll be there today. But, um, 
they would always, they had a plan. They'd, they'd throw the Frisbee on the beach or they'd go for their run. And then they'd come in there and she would come in there and take a naked sauna. And uh, there was a way to hang out under the, under the, the chair, under the bench, you know. So me and my brother, I'm like 10 and he's like 13. I think I almost died because we were in there for like 20, 30 minutes waiting for her to come in. And uh, I don't know why she was so delayed, but she finally came in there naked. And I'm 10 years old and I have not, I've never seen anything quite as amazing as that. Let me tell you, <laughs> yeah, I was even 11. <laughs> and then uh, I started giggling, you know, because I, I was like... <clears throat> You know, I could not, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. My brother was like, shush, what are you doing? And so then she, uh, she screamed and she looked under and saw us boys under there and ran out. And I thought my dad was going to kill us. And instead he gave me the thumbs up like, hey, I'm going to go. Like, Man, you get mad if I leave the garage door open, but you're not mad when I'm spying on Farrah and then make it in the jacuzzi. All right. <laughs> well, that's about the most perfect way to end this podcast. Uh, that go. is awesome. Uh, this was so much fun. Thank you so much. You got it, Josh. It's been far too long. And I'm listening. I'm happy that uh, for you, you know, uh, you're a great broadcaster. And for you to call these games, you know, that must be such a thrill for you. So congrats. Keep up the good work. Thank you, man. Hopefully we'll see each other soon, man. Stay safe. You too. Thanks, Josh. That is Patrick O'Neill. And this is Life Around the Seams.